0: Amen. As Ryan said, really during the first five centuries of the Christian church, as Christianity spread throughout most of the then-known world, there were different times during that time period in which a dispute arose that was about an issue that was so significant and potentially divisive of the church that the church really had to step in and deal with it. And I know that if you're a little bit skeptical of the church, you know, and you're here this morning, you're thinking, see, you people didn't get along from the beginning, and that's partially true, but it's not necessarily the case here. What happened here is very easily understandable and, frankly, good. And here's why, because, I mean, if you think about it for a minute, just historically, okay, the New Testament, we call it the New Testament today, don't we, still? The New Testament in their day was actually new. It's not new now. It's new relative to the old, but it wasn't actually new then. And so they didn't have the creeds we have. They didn't have statements or confessions of faith the way that we do. They didn't have highly developed and highly sophisticated theological doctrines and understandings, all of which we benefit from. Praise God, that is an awesome advantage to us. Guess who gave us that advantage? Those people. Those people. And it was largely built, oftentimes, out of dispute or debate. And so this is the way it would work historically. Some really charismatic, brilliant teacher would rise up within the context of the worldwide church and create a great following, because he was brilliant and charismatic. But he would begin to teach something about a very important issue that the whole rest of the church looked at and went, oh, wait a minute, bud, because that is not what the Bible teaches. And because it's such an important issue and because he was creating such a following, the church said, okay, hey, listen, we're going to have to deal with this. And so they would call a council. They would call it in a particular city and they would gather up representatives from the church from all over the world, pastors, scholars, teachers, whatever. They'd bring them all to this one city. They'd get them all in one room and they would say, okay, guys, here's our task. Our task is to prayerfully reason together from the Bible and then to create a statement that is definitive as to what the Bible actually says about whatever the disputed issue is. The Nicene Creed that we just read, as Ryan said, is the result of one of those councils. It's written in 8325. And it settled the matter of the deity of Jesus. I mean, is Jesus, you know, we see the first created being of the Father. What does begotten mean? Because he's begotten and not made. Now you heard, you see, they dealt with that issue and disseminated that, that opinion. And here we are, 1700 years later, and we in churches all over the world today are reciting that same creed. It is orthodox christianity It's established. It's settled. Now, I tell you all that, not because, you know, I wanted to lull you asleep with a church history lesson at the beginning of the message, but because as we return to our study today of this book of Acts that we've been working our way through all year, and then also as we return to our development through our study of the book of Acts, of this fundamental idea that life, meaning every moment of my life and yours, every category of my life and yours, is mission, and it's not my mission or yours. It's the mission of Jesus Christ, of going out into the world, starting in our homes, in our offices, in our schools, in our communities, and all around the world, and laying our lives down sacrificially after the example of our Lord in love and dedication to Him to take His gospel mercies to needy people and to take His gospel message to needy people. Okay, as we pick up that study and that endeavor, the development of that idea that life is mission, we come to Acts 15 and with it to the very first one of those five councils. And what we'll see as we enter into this is that it follows that same pattern that I just laid out. So if you've been hanging with us, you know, for example, that Paul and Barnabas, the world's first Christian missionaries, have already gone out And they've been sent out from this largely Gentile church of Antioch. That matters. And they've gone from Gentile city to Gentile city to Gentile city to Gentile city on the world's first Christian missionary journey, preaching this gospel of Jesus Christ, not just to the Jewish communities in those cities, but to the Gentile communities too. So they went not only to the synagogues. That was a natural. But they also, as we saw last week, preached in the city gates. To anyone who would listen. And here's what the Holy Spirit is doing. The Holy Spirit is bringing Jews and Gentiles to faith in Jesus, which is amazing. It's awesome. It's incredible. And it causes a big problem. And here's why. Because for 1,300 years, and you got to kind of feel the weight of this, the Jews have been separated from the Gentiles by the ceremonial laws of Moses that came to them and said hey well wait a second listen you are not clean before god unless you're circumcised and you don't eat that and you you know don't touch that and you do observe this and you have to do this and you can't do that you get the idea 1300 years and now all of a sudden the spirit is coming along and he's saying no 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 you guys are brothers go have lunch go have lunch I've got 1,300 years of history that says, I can't even go in this man's house. I can't share table with him. What if he has pork sandwiches? I mean, i got to admit, they smell good. Not going to lie, man, the baked beans. But really, you can understand it when you think about it like that, can't you? That's a really big deal. And so what happens in this story is that some of these brand new... Jewish Christians who have just come to faith and they don't have, you know, 21 centuries of theology having worked out all the implications of the gospel in their lives. I mean, they're kind of struggling with this idea that, well, wait a minute, now God is calling us to be one people. What do we do with this law that's separated us for 1,300 years? So much so that we'll see a couple of them come from the Jewish mother church in Jerusalem all the way to Antioch. And when I say all the way, it's a long way. So they're pretty passionate about their message because they've heard that Paul and Barnabas are out here teaching that, hey, you don't have to keep the law, just through Jesus you're clean. And they show up after Paul and Barnabas have finished their journey and are back at that church at Antioch, and they start teaching, no, 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 no. Here's the deal. It's great that you have Jesus, and yes, that's necessary, but... You also need to get circumcised, and you can't eat this, and you have to obey this and you have to observe this, and you need to go up, you know, three times a year for the festivals, and you can't touch that, it's dead, and you And no moderate amount of dispute then begins to take place. It's a very passionate moment. And the church says, All right, we need to settle this. So they call a council. We'll look at it. And here's where the council lands. It's my language, but this is what they're saying. They're saying, look, this gospel that we proclaim as we go out into the world to live our lives as mission sets us free. And let me be real clear by what that means. Sets us free from having to do anything, from having to say anything, from having to be anything, by which we then purchase what? The favor of God? The blessings of God? The heaven of God? our entrance into the family of God, the infinite and eternal inheritance of God, a share of infinite and eternal share in the glory of God. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to say anything. We don't have to be anything. And in fact, rightly understood in our sinful condition, we're dead right out of the gate. We never could. And if anything, the law simply reveals that. Why? because we break it more than we keep it. But here's the good news. Jesus did it all. That's it. Jesus said it all and Jesus is it all for us all, Jew and Gentile. And in him we are one people. In him alone we are made clean. It's when we forsake our efforts and just hand our sin and selves to Him that we are washed by the blood of what? The Passover Lamb, right? Who is Christ. Our sins atoned for and we're brought into the family of God. So the bottom line of this council is that, all right, the gospel that we proclaim as we go out into this world makes us free, guys. It sets us free. But here's what it doesn't set us free to do. It doesn't set us free to then live for ourselves, Oh, it sets us free, but then it obligates us, and it's an obligation of love. It provides to us a duty, but it's a duty of delight. Look, here's the deal: if you come to faith in Jesus, you're supposed to then live for Jesus, and that's a real obligation. Why? Because by living for Jesus, we're going to gain God's favor and His blessing and His heaven and His glory. And it, no, 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 Jesus did that. That's the gospel. You're to live for Christ because you grow to love him. And it's the natural outworking of a heart full of love for the one who has set you free. And just to be clear, too, what does it mean to live like you love Jesus? Because Jesus answers the question. He says, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. It's fascinating, isn't it? Now, are you going to keep them perfectly? Be honest. Not even close. And there's grace to cover that. There's blood to cover that. He died to cover that. But let me tell you what you are going to do. It's going to bug you when you don't. For the sake of the one who died for you. For the sake of the one you love. Are you going to start keeping them all right out of the gate? No, probably not. But as you grow in love for him, will you not then also grow in obedience to him? And do you then keep them in your strength? Definite no. You come to faith by the power of the Spirit. He draws you to Jesus. And then by the Spirit, you then learn to live for Jesus. But the bottom line is that the gospel that we proclaim as we go out into the world to live our lives as mission sets us free And then it obligates us to live for the one who has set us free. We pick up our study today in Acts 15, beginning in verse 1, where Luke, the author of this great book, says this. He says, "...but some men came down from the primarily Jewish mother church in Jerusalem, which is located in Judea, and they were teaching the brothers at this mostly Gentile church in Antioch, that, and here it is, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved." Okay? But, but then we read, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them over this very important issue that threatened to take the Christian church at its infancy and divide it into two groups of people, Jew and Gentile. After that occurred, well, then what happened? Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders at the mother church about this really big question. And then in verse 4, we see that when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders and that Paul and Barnabas then declared to them all... All that God had done with them amongst the Gentiles, but some Jewish believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, which was a party, as we see all through the New Testament, that was very zealous about the traditions and about the law. But who, in this case, had also converted to Christianity. And, you know, let's give these guys some grace, man. They're trying to work it out. We see that these guys from this party of the Pharisees rose up against Paul and Barnabas and said, it is necessary to circumcise all of the new Jewish converts to Christianity and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so the apostles and the elders were gathered together in this first church council ever to consider the matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter, who is the preeminent apostle, he's always speaking for the group sums it all up. He stands up and he sums it up when he says this. He says, Brothers, you know already, he's saying, that in the early days of this church, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. What is he thinking about? He's thinking about Acts chapter 10. He's thinking about Cornelius, the Roman centurion, whom God miraculously took him to. And not just to the courtyard of his house. No, 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 no. Into his house. That was forbidden by the law. He shared table with this man, also forbidden. He preached the gospel to this man, to his family, to all of his friends. And guess what happened? Not only did they come to faith in Christ, but as Peter's going to remind us here in a second, the Holy Spirit came upon them in a miraculous way. Signs and wonders exactly the way that he had come upon these same apostles in Acts chapter 2. And he's calling them to remember this. You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to the genuine conversion of those Gentile people. How? By giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost and in that act. God made no distinction between us and them. Having cleansed their hearts, how? By faith in Jesus, who did what? Who did it all. Who said what? Well, he said it all. Who is what? He is it all for all who come to him and humbly recognize that they are not. He says, look, he cleansed their hearts by faith. In Christ. And so now, therefore, Peter says, here's my conclusion. <laughs> Why are you putting God to the test by ignoring what he has already shown to us? And by placing a yoke, this yoke of the law, which is a heavy burden on the neck of these Gentile disciples that neither, now a little moment of transparency, he says, that neither our Jewish fathers nor we as Jews have ourselves been able to bear for the last 1300 years. It's too heavy even for us. But instead we believe that we Jews will be saved, how? Through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as these Gentiles will be saved. Guys, what is Peter saying? He's saying, look, the gospel that we preach is a gospel that sets us free. And not just from sin, but from so much more. I think oftentimes we look at the gospel and we go, okay, I came to faith in Jesus. I'm free from my sin and, and I'm free from the wrath of God and yahoo, and it is a big deal. I mean, you know, that is that is a woohoo hoo moment, moment, but... But it's more than that as you begin to work out the implications of this in your life and who you are in Christ, you realize, okay, wait a minute, this also frees me from the burden of having to try to impress, well, basically anyone. Why? Because based on the perfect performance of Jesus on your behalf, guess who's impressed with you, and not moderately, not like a little bit, like you've made his radar, oh, I think I read, yeah, the name looks, that sounds familiar. No, 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 no. With the whole of his being, with all of his passion, he rejoices over you with singing. He dances over you. Who is that? The God of the universe is impressed with you because of Christ. So, like, who else are you worried about? It's very relieving. It relieves us from the burden of having to impress our parents. And I'll be honest with you, I mean, some of us have had parents that, let's just call it, they're never going to be impressed. Never. And they use it to manipulate us. To impress your husband or your wife. Maybe that's a difficult task. To impress your boss or your coworkers or your brother or your sister or your friends or your classmates or your teachers there's all this pressure I just I want to impress I, I it relieves you from that and here's what it frees you to do see it relieves you from that then it frees you to Frankly, it frees you to forgive those people who have made it so abundantly and even at times cruelly clear to you that they will never be impressed by you. It frees you to forgive them and even to be gracious toward them, even to love them based not out of what you're getting from them, but what from you have in Christ. Now that's freedom. Tell you what else, it frees us from the burden to achieve. That is a big deal for 21st century Americans, particularly men. Men. It's a big deal because we race around in our lives trying to create an identity for ourselves or trying to establish for ourselves our own self-worth and importance and trying to gain for ourselves some measure of security in this very fragile world and we rush around and it drives our life. It's frankly what we worship. And so what we want to be able to do is get to the point where we go, look at all that I have. Look at all that I've accumulated. Look at all that I've done. Look at the great respect that I have in this tiny little sliver of humanity. But nevertheless, look at all that I've acquired. Aren't I important? Aren't I significant? Aren't I valuable? Aren't I secure? Do you know what the answers of those things are? Apart from Jesus? In the final analysis? No, 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 and No. No. But think about it this way for a minute. In Christ, Almighty God sacrificed the life, the infinitely valuable life of His infinitely valuable Son to reach down and to pull you out of the morass of humanity and out of the morass of your sin and mine, of our foolishness to wash us clean from a stain that we cannot make ourselves clean from, to bring us into His family that forever we are His, and to share with us everything that is His. I'm thinking maybe we're kind of valuable. I'm thinking we're eternally significant. And that, indeed, is our identity. See, we're free from the burden to achieve, but then what are we free to? Well, lots of things, but one is we're free to quit trying to create our own identity, our own self-worth, and our own security by running the rat race of life. We're free to step off the treadmill if that's why we're on the treadmill. And 99 times out of 100, it is. And we're free to be generous. Generous. We're free to give away our time. We're free to give away our talents. We're free to give away our dollars. And why are we free to do that? Because we're free from thinking that it's in the collection of those things. Okay, that we're made important, that we're made significant, that we find our value and our security when actually we don't. It frees us as well from the burden of our past failures. You know, from the things that, like, if I threw them up on the screen, you'd go, oh, good grief, and crawl under the chair and out to the back, right? We all have them. It frees us from the shame. It frees us from the guilt of the things that we've done that we know that we've done and God knows that we've done. And why are we free from those things? Because Christ has succeeded for us perfectly. And that's what God requires. And he's washed away all our failures with his blood. So what does that free us to do? It frees us to share our failures with other people. It frees us to become sensitive to what the Spirit wants to do with our really crummy story. Or maybe it's a glorious story. It is actually if it ends with Jesus and He redeems it. It frees us to take our most shameful things and to stand before people either one-on-one or one-on-one thousand and to say, here's who I am in and of my own flesh. So that we can say, and here's who Christ has made me to be. It frees us to be reckless with our reputations for Him, for His glory. And it frees us as well from the burden of, of, the, of the future because, you know, we're all running around thinking, well, if I'm going to be a success in this world, I need to create a plan and I need to live by that plan and I need to execute that plan. And Look, I'm a way planned out guy, so like, I get that, okay? I'm not against plans. I think that's the responsible thing to do and to have. But here's the plan of success. Follow Jesus. That's it. It frees you to abandon every other plan of success and every other pressure and expectation that comes from that. It frees you to fail in the eyes of this world if through failing you succeed in serving Christ. So you see how it works, right? I mean, the, the gospel comes and it frees us from things, but then the gospel comes and it frees us to things, and so then it seems to me, anyway, that the natural question is, okay, well, just because it frees me to do those things, Tom, to forgive, to be generous, to do this, to do that, to pursue Jesus and not my plans and all, that doesn't mean I have to do those things, does it? Oh, I think it does. I, I do. Why? Because this gospel we proclaim as we got into the world doesn't just set us free, it then flips the coin over and goes, okay, and now here's how a free person lives. A free person lives for Jesus, and you're not free to not do that. To live like somebody who loves the Lord. And it seems to me that nobody understood this better than the Apostle Paul, one of the guys we find in this council, one of the disputants, if you will, if you read through paul 's letters in the New Testament and I would encourage you to read them and then reread them and reread them and read them the entirety of your life here 's one of the patterns that you 're going to find in his letters he 's going to spend generally speaking the first half of the letter talking about Jesus and all of the the things that we are through faith in christ okay then he 's going to get to the second half and go and here is how you must now live not and here is probably what you ought to do since this is who you now are in christ you 're free. And maybe you should do... No. I'm going to give you an example. In the book of Colossians, after telling us all about the preeminence of Christ, after talking about the circumcision, by the way, in which he analogizes it to baptism, just throwing it out there, food for thought, but the circumcision not of our bodies but of our hearts. After telling us that we're free from the law because Jesus, well, he did it all, he said it all, and he is it all for us all who have faith in him after calling us to set our minds on things above as opposed to things below, after telling us that we need to value the last day, the day that Christ returns, more than we value today, and we need to live today in light of that. Okay, after saying all of these things, teaching us these great doctrines, he comes to us with a list of suggestions. No, not suggestions. Listen to what he says. Verse 5, Colossians chapter 3, he says, "...put to death therefore..." What is earthly in you? Does that sound like a suggestion? I mean, does that strike you like an optional kind of a thing? You know what Jesus says? He says, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross. That's language of death daily. And then follow me. What is he saying? He's saying, I want you to get up every morning and I want you to take your selfishness and nail it to the cross. I want you to take your insecurities and nail them to the cross because you're my precious child. You're secure in me. I want you to take your passions that will otherwise overrun you and nail them to the cross. Nail all your sins to the cross. Nail your plans and agendas to the cross. Nail all of these things to the cross. And then in humble reliance upon my spirit as a forgiven, set-free person, I want you to follow me in lockstep through this day. You die that you might truly live. Oh, Paul gets that. He says, all right, here's the deal. I'm just going to say it a little differently. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? Okay, so then what is that? He gives us a non-exhaustive list. He says sexual immorality. Some of us need to do that. We need to wake up and say, you know, I've got to live for this Jesus, and I need to put this to death. I need to take some action. I need to get involved in a group. I need to fight by the power of the Spirit, because I don't have the power in me to do it. And not just this. Well, he continues, impurity. That covers a lot of bases. Passion. Oh, good grief. We are all of us passionate creatures. Listen, the, the most powerful part of you is your passion. It's more powerful than your reason. It's why you and I, all of us, do stupid things. I mean, they're illogical. You look at it and go, that was really dumb. But I was feeling it in the moment. Yeah, you were. Me too. I get it. That's why you have to have Christ as your cause. Or you will be overrun by your passions. And so will I. Been there. Done that. Evil desire. Okay? Covetousness. See, now, if the Spirit comes to you in a moment like this and goes, all right, here's the evil desire I want you to be thinking about, it's just like it just pops to your mind, and you're going, is that a coincidence? I don't think it is. Covetousness, which is idolatry, he says. On account of these things, here we go, the wrath of God is coming. You know, and we all get a little nervous when we hear about the wrath of God. We kind of want to because there's some of this stuff on the list that, like, you know, we're all on board with, unfortunately. And so we're going, hey, well, wait a minute, the wrath of God is coming on who? Is, is the wrath of God coming on me? Do you belong to Jesus? Because He took the wrath of God on the cross. He set you free from that. That's the gospel. But here's the deal. How then can you love what put Him to death? How can you consider or continue to do the things, and not just do, but promote, fertilize, grow, water in your own heart, build a little fence around so nothing, no critter, no person, no thing can come in and and interrupt and allow it to drive its roots deep down into your heart and produce the fruit of its death in your life when that is in fact what Jesus, the one you love, had to die to rid you of? That's what He's talking about. He gives us this list and then he says to those people, he says, in these you two, what? Once walked, when you, and here it is again, were, it's all past tense. When you were living in them, but now he's saying, present tense, that you've come to faith in Jesus and are filled by his spirit and are authentically pursuing him and are ever increasingly falling in love with him, then you what? You must, it's mandatory, put them all away. And now he gives us another list, like just in case he missed a few of us. Here it is, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. You've been saved by the one who is altogether pure. He has sent you out on his mission to the world to represent him. Purity matters. Even in our speech, listen, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And boy, isn't that the truth. It really is. He says, do not lie to one another. Why? Because you belong to the one who is himself, truth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, the person you used to be before you came to faith in Christ, get this now, with its practices. and have put on the new self, this new creation that you are in Jesus, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. How? As you wake up every day and start nailing things to the cross and spending time with the Lord in personal worship and praying and pursuing Him, His knowledge, the knowledge of Him and of His ways, coming to understand His voice through the Spirit as you study His Word, as you put into practice these things, these means by which you come to know Christ and what it looks like to follow him as you gather on Sunday mornings. As you sing his praise, even if your voice isn't all that hot. As you sit beneath his word, not above his word, staring critically down at it as if you're the judge and he's not. And saying, well, I kind of like that part. And but not this. No, no, no. As you sit and humble yourself beneath his word, which is life as you realize you can't do this alone, and he's given you not just his spirit, but his spirit-filled community. And as you come to recognize then, as you're transformed, you say, little by little, and it's little by little, three steps forward, two steps back oftentimes, that God has not made you for you, he's made you for him. And he's given you all of these gifts and talents and resources and all of this stuff, not primarily for you but primarily for Him, and you grow in the knowledge of Him, of the image of Him. And He says, in that place, there's not Greek and Jew and circumcised and uncircumcised and barbarian and Scythian and slave and free, but Christ is all and in all, for He did it all, He said it all, and He is it all, that He might take us all, diverse as we are, and make us one. He makes us one. So then, he says, put on, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, which is who you are in Jesus, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, for those are the traits of the one to whom you belong, who set you free, and who you represent in your home and office and school and so forth. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also what? Might want to think about? No. So you must forgive. It's it's all mandatory language. So here's the deal. The gospel that we proclaim as we go out into the world to live our lives as mission sets us free. But not free to live for ourselves. It sets us free from But it sets us free to, and the to matters. It sets us free to truly live for Him which I think is exactly what we see next in this story in Acts 15 because after hearing all the arguments and debates and whatnot and summarizing statements from Peter and from James and all that, Luke says this in verse 22. He says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And so they sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers there in Jerusalem, and they sent them with the following letter. So they wrote a letter, a written decision. Here's the letter. They said, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia and anywhere else Paul and Barnabas have gone, greetings, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions to do that. They were not authorized by us to carry that message. It has seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men who, unlike those guys, actually are authorized to carry our message and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the very same things by word of mouth for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you, real interesting, no greater burden than these requirements. So they do lay a burden on them. Curious? Here are the requirements. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And they say, if you keep these things or yourselves from these, you will do well. And they say, then, farewell. And you go, well, all right, I wasn't really expecting that because I thought they were free from all that stuff. Jesus did it all, said it all, and is it all, and that's true. They were free from but they were also free too. They were free, these brand new Gentile Christians, to sacrifice their freedoms in order to remove a big, huge wall between them and their brand new Jewish Christian brothers and sisters who haven't had a whole lot of centuries yet to think through the implications of their gospel and who are going to need to take some time, I think quite understandably, getting their hearts and minds around the idea that 1,300 years of law-keeping just disappeared and that being clean comes through faith in Christ. Paul comes to us with the law and he says, do you know the purpose of the law? It's not to tell you how not to sin only. It is to reveal to you that in fact, you've got a sin problem and need Jesus. That you cannot, by keeping it, be made clean. And you need another way. And these guys gladly sacrifice those freedoms. Fine, we don't have to, Well, we can't eat the pork sandwich, so, you know, it's out the window. and No big deal. We will do that as a sacrifice of love for the Lord who, what? Sacrificed every one of His freedoms quite literally. You can't move around much on a cross, guys. That He might remove all of the barriers between Him and them and us. And so the bottom line is that our gospel, the gospel we proclaim as we go into the world to live our lives, as mission sets us free. Got it. But not free to live for ourselves. It sets us free to live for him. In fact, it obligates us and it is the obligation of love. It is the duty of delight as we come daily to delight ourselves in him to live for this Jesus. So I'm going to close with two questions, Okay. Number one, have you been set free? Like, have you realized, good grief, (laughs) there really isn't anything I can do or say, or be or become, that's ever going to be enough for a perfectly righteous God who is himself a consuming fire, we read in the Bible. I just can't be that good. I can't gain his heaven on my own and his blessing and all that other stuff, Tom, that you said, I get it, I get it, okay, fine. That's the bad news, here's the good news. Jesus did it all. Said it all? Is it all? Not just for these guys. Not just for a bunch of folks here. But for everyone who comes to Him and says, alright, I give it up. Here, <laughs> I need to be made clean. So have you been set free? Secondly, secondly, Do you live like someone who loves Jesus more than sin or someone who loves sin more than Jesus? Because guess which one you're supposed to manifest to this world with the whole of your life that you're called to love more. And it's Christ. And I think a lot of us are still loving our sin more than Jesus. And look, we're all in a constant tension of struggle with that. I get it. I feel it. I know it. But we need to confess that to Christ. And confess as well that we can't do it. Powerless against it on our own. But we're not alone. For He gives us His Spirit. He gives us His Word. He gives us Himself. He sets us free. He gives us His people. And we need to start getting up in the morning and going, all right, let's just start with selfishness, Lord, because I think that's the one you want me to start with first. I'm going to nail it to the cross, and I know I'm going to pluck it right back down in about 15 minutes, but I'll re-nail it. You know, I need to put this to death in me, that I might be free from it in my life and really live for you. So work that all through. And let the Lord speak to you in that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, self-examination is not always a fun thing. And, um, And what your Spirit reveals to us at times is quite startling. And yet in our trauma, in some sense, you rush to our aid with the blood of your Son with the perfect sacrifice of the Lamb of God, who is Christ. Freely offering to cover our sin once and for all. To make us clean. To establish peace between us and God. To grant to us all the things of His heaven, of His eternity, of His glory, of His inheritance. Lord, to make us sons and daughters of the King. My goodness. May we avail ourselves of that by faith. Humble ourselves and say, you know what? Yeah, I think I need that. In fact, no, I know I do. But then beyond that, Lord, help us to be honest about examining our own lives and the way that we isolate from one another, the way that we hide and nurture sin in our lives, the way that we fence it off so nobody can see it, the way that we fertilize and feed it and actually construct our whole life around it, the way that it destroys us in the process, and the way that it impairs our ability to truly give ourselves to You and to live for You, for You have not set us free. Praise God to live for ourselves. You have made us free, Lord, that in love we might live for you. Oh, God, fill us with your spirit. Nurture us with your word. Strengthen us, God, with Christian brothers and sisters. And let us experience that freedom, that joy, that delight, and fulfill that obligation of love to your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.